today, Krispy Kreme pulls an offensive ad after an exclusive story from Mumbrella, but how did it get through in the first place? Outdoor advertising is on the up. We look at why. The best work perks in Adland. What would draw you to your next workplace? And some remarkable stats on magazines that suggest maybe the end of print is not nigh after all. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. I'm Michael Thompson, and I'm joined every week by my colleague Adam Lang, who is, as we mentioned last week, he's not just part of the team here, but he's a, a former CEO of a media company. He's got a lot of experience. He's worked across radio and TV and music and a lot. So I'll be getting his take on pretty much everything. He's a real veteran. Adam, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. And speaking of experience, mm. really only one way to introduce uh, our uh, our co-host today is our uh, our veteran colleague Ooh. Sean Aylmer, who who not only works on Mumbrella with us and Fear and Greed with us, but he's had really a, a remarkable career in newspapers as the editorial director of Fairfax and running these extraordinary publications over a, a long period of time, a very long period of time. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Sean, good afternoon. We get the point. Good afternoon, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I'm not sure about that introduction, but I've got to say I have a real soft spot for me and marketing. Obviously, I've been in the media forever, so it seems. So I like that. But it's about, it's about the third interview I ever did. I worked for a newspaper called Business Sydney, short-lived newspaper, small business newspaper uh, that itself got very small and shrunk into a non-existence. Anyway, the third interview I did with, was with a guy called Wayne Kingston, who at the time was CEO of DDB Needham, one of the big agencies. And Wayne was incredibly generous in time and spirit to me. And I knew nothing about what I was talking about or what I was asking, but he explained it to me very, very patiently. And I appreciate that way. And I think nowadays he's, well, last I heard he was at um, Macquarie Uni lecturing, I think, but he ran DDB in Australia for uh, a long time, maybe 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Sean, doesn't it, doesn't it make a difference when someone kind of takes you under their wing a little bit when you're just starting out, whether it's in a particular job or a particular kind of field or something? And, and if you don't know much, it just makes so much difference when someone kind of goes, you know what, I'm going to help oh, them out a little bit. Totally. Rather than just being potentially a little bit uh, standoffish and, and kind of like, well, you don't know anything, they actually take the time to give you an introduction and it can change your whole career. Yeah. And I mean, here I am talking about Wayne Kingston, the interview I did with him 20 or 30 years ago. Wayne would not know me from a bar of soap. He would never remember that interview, but that was the impact he had on me and my journalism career. Oh, amazing. What a positive yeah. start to the show today. It is positive. Now, let's, I don't know whether that's a good segue into our lead story today because it was a fascinating one. And this was really a, well, it's a Mumbrella exclusive, it was this week. Some great work by our colleague Lauren McNamara working on Mumbrella this week about a story about Krispy Kreme. And so just as a bit of background, this is what happened. Krispy Kreme, Australia, New Zealand launched a new campaign and it was a a series of spots and it was designed to establish this idea that the donuts are something that you can bring to a celebration, that they kind of bring people together, that you can kind of uh, have them if you are celebrating a birthday or a a sporting win or something along those lines. Uh, It was a campaign in collaboration with Abel and Limehouse production. And so uh, what we noticed this week, and and Lauren did a lot of work on this, that in one of those four spots, 
the word congrats and all of the, the the spots had the same kind of general theme that that if there was an o in the word whether it was uh, sport or congrats that 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 would expand into multiple o's and those o's would become donuts unfortunately with the word congrats as soon as there was more than one o it actually uh, spelt essentially a racial slur and and so uh, Lauren did a lot of work on this and spoke to Krispy Kreme and contacted Abel as well, the creative agency behind it. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to you both today about this and about this issue of questionable content actually getting through uh, what would you would assume be many, many lines of approval in order to do this. First of all, what did you make of this? And I'll start with you, Sean. What did you make of this this week? Kind of, were you surprised that it actually made it out into the public before it was noticed? Totally. As you said, Lauren did great work. And the way the process went, Lauren said to you, Michael, hey, Michael, check this out. And you watched the ad and you turned around to me and said, check this out. And we all went, wow, you just can't do that. You can't have, you know, that word C triple O N gratulations and get away with it. And Lauren did what she should. She rang the creative agency and she rang Krispy Kreme. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but it seems, it appears that they just hadn't noticed it. Like certainly they weren't, I don't, they were certainly not being deliberately racist as far as I can tell. It was inadvertent, but they just hadn't noticed it. And that's what blew me away because that would have gone through a lot of people and a lot of sign-offs, and it probably was great creative, but to go through so many people, yet when we three saw it, we all saw it immediately, and given the political environment at the moment and what's going on with the referendum, and it staggered me that it hadn't been picked up till now. That's kind of what has stuck with me on that story. And there's no question over kind of being too sensitive on this as well. Because, uh, yeah. Adam, in your your take on this uh, as well, there's really kind of no room for this in a, in a campaign like this. It's meant to be a very positive, very kind of fun campaign about bringing people together. And, and really, I mean, congrats. They could use the word hooray. Just oh, look, me just brainstorming again. It, it seems to be what I like to do: use these podcasts as, as our own kind of brainstorming session. But there's really kind of no room for that in that in this campaign. No, and unfortunately, with Krispy Kreme internationally, there is precedent for things that have not gone as well as they should have, and again, we're inadvertent. So it does seem to be a repeat issue for the brand, and that is unfortunate because those issues compound and. I think there's a, a few themes that come out of this. You know, when, when a crisis happens, what do you do? And and when we approached them, when Lauren approached them, they did apologise. They said it was inadvertent and they've withdrawn the ad. So there was clearly no intent to cause harm. But you really wonder, what atmosphere did this just slip by? And in the teamwork of brand, creative, media agency, it can't slip by. So now that it has, they've really got you know a, a bit of an approach to decide upon what are they going to do from here. And that too will be fascinating. Do you feel like it taints the rest of the campaign or is the, the rest of the campaign able to kind of continue without it? it, it look, it can, but I, I am an optimist and <laughs> shall I say I've been blessed with having lived through a few crises myself. 
And I think there's only one way to approach this, and that is there is opportunity in the crisis. There is something that you can do that makes this a better company, a better brand. Uh, It might not always be easy to get to, and sometimes it takes a lot of thought and consideration to get there, but that is the opportunity there. So I would say, yeah, absolutely, you can learn from this and do better by embracing the opportunity in this crisis. And to those involved, it'll feel like a crisis, like this 24, 48, 72-hour period will be intense and they really have to pull together all three of those parties, the brand, the creative, the marketing agency, with their marketing partners to, I think, reapproach this. Sean, do you reckon they've done brand damage here? Uh, I mean, in terms of the response, the response was seemed to be very quick in, in removing this the, the, the offensive spot from the campaign. But do you think they've done kind of potentially long-lasting brand damage, Krispy Kreme? Yeah, totally. Adam, you're a half-glass full man. I love it about you, right? But Krispy Kreme is a repeat offender, unfortunately. It had an issue in, I'm going to guess, 2015 or thereabouts in the UK over one is promo- over a promotion that was used KKK, the Krispy Kreme part being the second and third K. That was an issue for them. When you do this a couple of times, you can't expect anything but brand damage. And the problem is that, you know, this is obviously run on Mumbrella. It's run in the mainstream media now. Every time someone Googles Krispy Kreme and hits news, it suddenly comes up about the campaign that went wrong. I, I just don't see that there can't be brand damage to them in the short term. Now, it's kind of, remember Rio Tinto, the Yukon Gorge disaster and that yeah, was an well. absolute disaster and they basically blew up uh caves which had uh, indigenous paintings in them they were tens i think this is uh, forty thousand years old thereabouts the amazing brand damage to rio and two years on they are still struggling to come back from that well they lost a ceo i lost other. the chair a ceo yep. senior managers they also did an incredible review of workplace culture, what was going on, processes. In the end, the mining industry itself has changed, but Rio hasn't recovered from it. Now, this isn't as big as that, right? But I just don't think you can brush it off and think things will be okay. I think the brand damage will be lasting. Yeah, and I I think as well when... Uh, going back to one of the initial points about this should have been picked up because everybody is hyper aware of this, particularly in a, in a kind of a, a brand marketing sense, uh, considering the campaign a couple of years ago to change the name of Coon Cheese to Cheer Cheese, which was led by Dr. Stephen Hagen, who spoke to Mumbrella about his thoughts then on on Krispy Kreme doing this. And so this is not as though this is uh, this has just kind of come out of the blue that there is kind of sensitivity and an issue with the use of this of this word. It should have been picked up. And as a result, there may well be this lasting brand damage. Look, I think we've covered this fairly uh, fairly extensively. It is it's worth having a look at uh, mumbrella.com.au, have a look at the the creative and and just see some of the commentary around it because it is uh, a story that has gained quite a bit of attention both here and uh, internationally uh, across the last few days. All right, we'll take a very quick break and we'll come back and uh, have a look at a few other stories from Mumbrella this week. All right, so we're each picking a story that Mumbrella has covered in the last week or so and and bringing it to the table for discussion. And I suspect that this is going to get very subjective as to what people are going to uh, to pick. You're going to pick something that appeals to you. Adam, I suspect, again, 
is going to go for something with a little bit of detail yep. to it and maybe an, ex- an Excel spreadsheet uh, behind it. Adam, what have you chosen for us? What has Excel put forward? <laughs> well, it's not just Excel, Michael. It's also the, the vital part of the media industry that is the out-of-home industry, right? So this week we had Ooh Media Report, its annual results, and Cathy O'Connor spoke with Mumbrella, so we got a bit of extra insight into the numbers. And it is a, a very interesting industry overall. So first disclosure from me, I do work with the industry in a very limited capacity. I'm the independent chair of the Isle of Home measurement project called Move 2.0. So that'll launch around this time next year. That is strictly audience measurement and that has no access to uh, information that everyone doesn't get. So there's nothing I'm saying here that isn't publicly available information. But we can say that you're an industry veteran now, can't we? (laughs) I think you can say I'm a veteran and, yes, media industry veteran. Yeah, I, I think I qualify. Perfect. You're a pair of veterans. This is this is delightful. Excellent. And I'm just a, a spring chicken. Please go on. And you are an upstart pain in the ass. Oh, sorry. Did that come out? <laughs> oh, it just slipped out there, Sean. I'm sorry. About that. Uh, Adam, please go on. Yeah, Ignore so Sean's interruptions. The out-of-home industry is part of a really interesting changing landscape in media in general. So we've talked last week about the seven results, seven West results, and television, broadcast television. It's changing nature from linear streaming to digital, how audiences want to consume content, how advertisers want to reach those audiences is changing a lot, as it is for the out-of-home industry. It's also affecting audio, radio, and digital audio. So just concentrating on the out-of-home format. And then amongst that change into the post-COVID arena, whereby spending was really affected during COVID and lockdowns, you can imagine how the out-of-home formats were disadvantaged by those lockdowns, now trading out of that period and coming into the last financial year, financial year 2023, or even this half, the January to June half. So the out-of-home industry has been growing. OMA, the Outdoor Media Association, has published their results, 11.9% revenue growth. That would be jealously looked upon by many others in the media industry. That is good growth for the industry, even against those contexts. And within that, O-Media, as their results showed us this week, have basically kept up with that share in a tale of two different quarters, January to March and then April to June. They had different revenue shares in those results, but they've basically held revenue share. And revenue share for O-Media in Out of Home is at about 40%. So they are a Goliath in that industry. They are a big company. They've got formats, people, big companies. So it's always interesting to see what's going on. I think the things to watch for in amongst this is we know that there was some competitive changes. The City of Sydney contract went from JC to Co to QMS. And so while that happened, there was a bunch of literally rebuilding of formats. And with COVID lockdowns and that rebuilding, there was not a lot of marketing going on through all of the periods preceding. So what we've seen is that come back in and that's been leading to revenue growth as well. So what we see is a few different things. We see technology changes with digitization of -of out-of-home formats. We see post-COVID changes and we see the overall audience changes that are evident in television, audio and now out-of-home. And so I think this was a really interesting result. Adam, 
four-part question, if I may. Excellent. Oh, my word. This is You two are, you are two RPs in a pod. Let's get the detail. No. No, it's 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 really only a two-parter, uh, mm. but I did I did threaten Adam last week that we would go with a twenty-six part question because I was telling Damien Francis last week on the podcast that you can never stump Adam with a multi-part question because the pen comes out and he's there scribbling <laughs> furiously, taking his notes, and so I just thought I'll I'll see how we go here, Adam. I mean that that growth is is good. Part one, part one a of this question. Uh, now, is, is what, what can affect that growth? What, what's the risk here? It, and it's largely the, the kind of the economic landscape looking for it. And maybe, Sean, with your background uh, as an economist as well, I'd be interested to get your uh, take on that. But also, is it measurement? And is there a risk that, that measurement is not keeping up with the, the growth here as well? And, and I suppose, perhaps answering the question for you, that is why there is so much work being done to, uh, to improve and modernize the measurement. Okay, so underpinning all of this is the themes. So the industry has been, the out-of-home industry, I should say, has been investing in inventory significantly for some time. It is no longer you're just pasting up posters on outdoor billboards. The digitization that is happening is prolific, and the investment in that is significant. So it takes a lot of money to put screens in where just flat panels were. Beyond that, you need to be able to serve ads to that. You need to have creative that's geared, but also on the return on investment, you can do more than one execution. For example, you you don't just have to paste up billboards for a four-week cycle or a weekly cycle. You can share digital executions more than one at a time, uh, depending on the rotations you serve. So it's an investment in significant inventory, in panels, digitization, and systems that can yield a great result for advertisers. You can do different creatives per time of the day, if it's raining or not, the weather's hot or not. You can also work with clients on multiple different creative messages wherever you like, in different geographies, different times. So there is a significant investment in that, and that's underpinning some of this growth. So you'd say, you know, what what can affect that growth is if they don't continue or if those systems don't continue to evolve. So I think there is a an undercurrent, a requirement to keep investing in that change, to keep attracting those advertisers in those ways. In terms of measurement, the short answer is yes. And, you know, measurement can get in the way, but this is where the industry got ahead of that a few years ago. You know, they did move the original one in about 2010. That led to a significant boost in revenue share for out-of-home. It was only metropolitan. It was only measurement of static, and it really only gave you one measurement that was an average across a whole year. What is now in place is Move 1.5, which measures digital, but what Move 2.0 does is create a system that measures both metropolitan and regional, all formats, digital and static, by hour of the day of the year. And so you're getting far more granular measurement of out of home audiences. And so that will be a significant boost for advertisers that they'll be able to see the data that they need, the audience data they need to generate successful campaigns, and they'll be able to craft creative messaging that speaks to that. So I'd say that, you know, there are things that can stand in the way of course of growth. And, and you mentioned economic challenges, but underpinning this, I think, are some tidal changes in both the way the inventory is invested in 
and can craft advertising messages and the way audiences are being measured. What I find really interesting about that, Adam, and you know the outdoor industry so well, marketing has moved well beyond what it was five years ago, 10 years ago because of digitization. I think you see from the Coles and Woolworths results this week, Cartology, which is a Woolworths retail media brand, and the Coles media brand, which is Coles 360, they've got a growth of between 25 and 30%. That's triple what outdoor is doing in the last financial year. I think part of the answer to the question is how will they go? It's actually as much about competition as it is about innovation, as it is about the economy. I mean, the industry cyclical, that's has its ups and downs. But when you see Woolies and Coles coming in and taking the ad dollars off, not just outdoor, but clearly free to wear to newspapers from podcasts, perhaps, surely not, <laughs> uh, but from the big social media groups as well, from search, etc. That, I think, is potentially the biggest challenge for those guys. Sean, you're absolutely right. It is a fiercely competitive industry. And, and so the way that plays out will be fascinating. Also amongst that, as you can imagine, for brands, wanting to compete with other brands. It's the same theme for them. What are the categories doing for beverages? What are they doing for quick service restaurants? What are they doing for retail? Yeah, it it is all fascinating. And absolutely, there's a dependency on competition. Adam, was Move 1.5 named after Move (laughs) 2.0? Because it kind of feels like Move 2.0 was named and they're like, oh God, we actually need another name for what's happening now. Quick, let's squeeze it in at 1.5. Because otherwise you would think we'd go 2.0, 3.0 or anything. So Nice pickup, Michael. Mm, yeah, that's what I'm here mm. for, to uh, to focus on the largely irrelevant details while you yeah. two just get into the meat. But we better move on. And uh, Sean, what have you mm. gotten for us this week? What have you picked out as your, it doesn't even have to be your favorite story from Umbrella this week, just something that has really kind of jumped out at you. I think it is my favorite story. It was one Nathan Jolly did. Deputy Editor at Mumbrella. In fact, he did it over a couple of days, a two-part series, shall we say. It's basically what agencies are doing to attract and retain staff. Once it was about work flexibility, you know, maybe you get a cup of coffee at work for free, that type of thing. No longer. We're talking trips to Bali. We're talking big chunks of paid maternity leave, not just for primary carers, but also for partners. We're talking the agency owning a beach house in New South Wales in Copacabana, for example, and actually giving it to employees because they think, well, you've done a pretty good job. Why don't you go and have a weekend away? It's kind of, I don't know whether this actually retains people. I still think the work you do, the people you work with, et cetera, actually determines whether or not you stay in an organisation But still, the idea that you can work for four weeks of the year from a different time zone and not be penalised, it is kind of attractive. The idea that you will get a trip somewhere around the world or you'll be part of a 50% profit share or there'll be a staff Bitcoin pool, it's all pretty kind of, I mean, I just think it's fascinating what companies are doing, particularly in, in this industry, because many of the employees are younger, many of the employees are quite willing to up and leave. I think it's really fascinating what 
what agencies are doing. Completely agree, Sean. And it's definitely worth heading to mumbrella.com.au and checking out that two-part article, The Best Work Perks in Adland, Parts 1 and 2. I mean, the annual ski trip is one that's offered. And that is amazing because, I mean, that's very expensive to go to the snow. And so wouldn't that be incredible? The one, though, work perk that would be an anti-perk for me is a dog-friendly office. Ah, yeah. Well, that that's it. I mean, it's funny. Wideco, one of the agencies, actually has two paid days of fur baby leave. So it's basically the option for staff to work from home for up to two weeks when getting a pet. That attracts me much more because I don't want pets in the office personally. No. No, I find them to be a distraction. Yeah, I spend too much time playing with them and stuff like that. What about you, Adam? What's going to keep you working with us? <laughs> it's a slightly loaded question, that one, isn't it? Sorry. So I'm, I think I'm with Sean on this one, which is for me, it's much more about the work. Like, What's going to make me better? I'd be interested in knowing what education opportunities are possible. What qualification could I get that might serve the company and serve me uh, as well as that team environment? This is, you know, I guess, into the day-to-day routine is how do we set our day? How do we review what went well, what didn't go well, what can we learn? How do we keep getting better? So, you know, I'm I'm here to play. You know, this is, the game is on for me. And so I want to get better at it and keep winning. Adam, sometimes you make really fun stuff sound slightly yeah, I was going to say, isn't that an extraordinary <laughs> difference between the three of us? Here, Sean, Sean wants to go home and look after his and play with his dog. I want to go on a ski trip and Adam wants to do a course. Mm. just... What I loved about this story, when when Nathan, the first part, ran, it was amazing how many agencies got in touch and went, ha, huh, is that all they do? Get a load of this. This is what we do. And it became like you know, sort of upping each other about – and some, some of the stuff that they provide for is pretty amazing. And, you know, others would come in and say, well, you know, we have a uh, early knockoff every second Wednesday and uh, you can also work from home on a Wednesday if you really want – and compare that to those who are saying, well, we don't care whether you're in the office or not. There is a big gap between different agencies over how they're, they're managing people, definitely. Do you think, though, over time we're going to see these become the norm? That, that, say, those flexible working hours, that won't actually be a perk anymore to draw you to a workplace. That is actually just going to be a minimum expectation that you are going to be able to have that conversation with a potential employer to basically set work hours that are more suitable for you. Well, legally, the government has, the federal government has found itself in hot water over that, the public service, about the fact that they have to offer flexible work. It's it's actually a right, not a choice. It is interesting that the tech companies are bringing people back into the office and they've led the way often in human resource management. I love the story recently that Zoom, which is made for remote work, told its staff that three days a week they need to be in the office. That's ironic, but I'm just, I think it's fascinating that those big tech companies are bringing people back into the office. So I'm not sure whether we end up in a, in a totally flexible workplace or not. I suspect not. I think the onus on companies now, perhaps more than ever, is to define their employment proposition. So we hear the EVP, the employee value proposition, And to me, that's an articulation of culture, right? What do you want to be? What do you want to be known for? How do you play the game? Uh, 
And so this you know, has exploded through COVID through necessity, Michael, as you said last week on the Mumbrella cast, and then back in again, we want to try and bring that back towards somewhere like we used to have it. But it, it does need to be redefined. I think the exciting part is how do companies choose to define their culture around what they want and how they play the game and can they win doing it? Sean, did Adam just succeed in doing it again? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's two from two. I, I, I listened to most of it. But <laughs> is it a three strikes rule? Do I get banned off the Mumbrella cast if I've got do a it yellow again? card at the moment? Now, we haven't heard your story of the week, Michael. Well, look, actually, mine is mine's just a quick one, really. But it's, it's a bit of good news. I like this story because it's a little bit positive. I'm sick of all the negativity around. And last week, last week I talked about uh, how we had TV ad revenues declining, but there was a rise in broadcast video on demand and at the same time rise in podcast advertising as well. And and they were both examples of very kind of digital, very forward-looking media. And so you get the kind of impression that, that things are kind of moving ahead. This week, though, we've had stats about, of all things, magazines. And you can't get much more old school than your good old-fashioned magazine. So anyone who thinks, though, that the magazines are like newspapers, as everyone probably says every decade, printers dying. Just look at this. Look at these stats. These are from R Media, uh, which publishes Better Homes and Gardens, and the Women's Weekly, and TV Week, and a bunch of other titles. Better Homes and Gardens is still the most read paid print magazine in Australia, but the average readership is up 16% for the June quarter. Uh, The Australian Women's Weekly, uh, that's up 10% year on year. There's a a spin-off there, the Cooking with the Australian Women's Weekly, that was up 18%. Women's Day, up 14%. TV Week, up 21%. These are pretty extraordinary figures for a medium that is supposedly going backwards. I love this story. Yeah, I love this story too. And Sean, I'd be interested in your perspective because you would have heard it said so many times, working in print for decades, that kind of newspapers were... um, bound for extinction. Yes. Now, I must tell a story. I was the editor-in-chief of BRW for a while, and it it did okay, but it was obviously not going to remain a proposition in print. And I remember discussing it with the CEO of Fairfax at the time, and basically we had come to the conclusion that BRW print edition would close. All fine. Mm Mm-hmm. At the AGM, the General Meeting for Shareholders for Fairfax, the then chair, Roger Corbett, stood up and said, someone asked about BRW and he said, yes, but it will remain an online presence. We will have its own website. Off we go. Now, the truth of the matter is that I hadn't given that much thought. I just kind of, in my mind, had assumed that we were closing BRW and it would be morphed into the AFR. In that moment, as Roger Corbett, the chair, who clearly I had not briefed correctly, said, yes, it will have an online presence. I just remember texting someone saying, we better get that website going. (laughs) (laughs) Were you on the floor at the AGM at the time? Yeah, (laughs) totally, totally. Anyway, leaving that aside, yeah, print's been dying forever. It has to be a subscription-based product now because it can't be advertising based. You still have some magnificent magazines, you know, in the US particularly, Atlantic Monthly, New Yorker, incredible writing, incredible stories, but even they're struggling. So I hope this is right. I hope readership's up. Uh, The one thing about 
magazines are that they're kind of destinations. So you get a magazine and you read it as a place, a thing you want to do. You're not scrolling TikTok. You're not, you don't scroll a magazine. You know, when you go onto social media, you scroll, you see if anything grabs your attention. The great thing about magazines is you buy it and it might cost you $8. And so you sit and take make the effort to get something out of it, which of course is great for advertisers. So uh, I'm still slightly, slightly cynical about whether print has a long-term future, to be honest. But I mean, these are very encouraging figures. So I love this story too, Michael. And the reason is that, of course, I see the internal business element of it. And it is grappling with that significant change. So morphing from a print into a digital product, or really it's not from one to the other, it's a hybrid of both, but navigating the audience requirements, the advertiser requirements and the operational requirements. That to me, the fact that they've been able to achieve audience growth is significant and well done to them. I hope they can make it continue. Adam, did you know the um, there's a body in the US uh, called the uh, Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy do you know what their uh, quarterly magazine is called? It is called <laughs> Spreadsheet Magazine. <laughs> and so I was tough. just, while you were talking, I was Googling to see whether I could get you a subscription to this uh, magazine, knowing your affection for a good old-fashioned Excel spreadsheet. Mm. And wouldn't you know that uh, in 2020, Spreadsheet Magazine was officially retired. So it's, it's, oh. it's probably... Maybe we can have another crack at yeah, it. Yeah, reinvent Spreadsheet Magazine for a new generation, digital only. It's a case study for the Mumbrella cast. Yeah, indeed. All right. And on that note, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. Thank you both very much for your time. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for allowing me on, Michael. No worries. It's great to have a veteran with us. And speaking of veterans, thank you, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. And before we sign off, I am looking forward to seeing you at the Mumbrella Sports Marketing Summit tomorrow, Randwick Racecourse, and the Sports Marketing Awards. And we'll see in a category of 10 uh, who the winners are. But there's some great topics of discussion at this summit, and we'll be reporting from it live from the floor at Mumbrella. So please, for anyone interested in sports and sports marketing, especially around this time of massive success like the Matildas and the World Cup, there is so much to talk about and so many opportunities to, to glean information from. Yeah, well said. That is tomorrow, Thursday, the 24th of August. Hopefully we'll see you there. And this is the Mumbrella cast. Remember to hit follow on the podcast and head along to mumbrella.com.au for more information on pretty much everything that we've talked about today. Thanks for your company. See you next time.